Well, my original intent and plan was to preach this morning on 1 Samuel chapter 11. That's what the weekly email went out on, and and maybe what you all prepared for, but on Friday night, I sent out the news of our brother Mike Winther's death and thought it might be more appropriate to change today's topic midstream and preach on prayer instead. Ultimately, to answer questions that undoubtedly arise from a time like this. Gentlemen, I'm going to go ahead and turn this off. I know we did the sound check early on, but... Technical issues. But I do want to address questions that undoubtedly arise during a time like this. Questions like, why didn't God answer our prayers when we prayed around the clock? Or what if I missed my prayer time? Did God still consider Mike? How important was it that we prayed as, as frequently as we did? Did we pray for the right things? What, what if I didn't participate at all? Is God mad at me? Are we supposed to pray like that every time someone gets sick? And so we're not going to use so much a theme passage today, but rather we'll be moving through some different Old and New Testament passages as we explore these and other questions. And I want to begin by asking and answering the question of what is prayer? And Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 22 implies an important answer to that question. We read here, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author here speaks of drawing near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And Paul says something similar in Ephesians 2.13 when he writes that we who were once far off have been brought near to God. And I spoke a few weeks ago about the adoptive grace of God. And by that adoption, we have become a part of God's family with all the privileges of children. And those who were far off, which in other passages is described as being aliens or separated or enemies, all terms of broken relationship are brought near. And the result is that we have the right, we have the ability to speak with God as Father. And so he brings us near, he opens our, his hands, he inclines his ear, and he reveals his blessings, and he tells us to ask and seek and knock. And we, delighted by our God and overwhelmed by his love and obedient to his commands, we bring our needs to him, we praise him confess our sins to him and we seek his help 
And so important is this communication of child to father that we are told in other parts of Scripture that the Holy Spirit and the Son intercede on our behalf as we pray. In other words, the level of involvement of God with our prayers and speaking and interceding and in motivating and receiving them suggests God wants you to pray. Now, if you were with us during our study of Revelation several years ago, you may remember this passage from Revelation chapter 8. It's a great passage. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, we read, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. You may ask questions like, why pray when God already has all of his answers determined and figured out? Why pray when it seems like God's answer is often different than the one that I desire? Why pray when I am but one insignificant person in a sea of people who have their own prayers? Well, this passage in Revelation 8 answers those questions. John writes that when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And if there is one thing that Revelation has a, has a lot of, as we discovered when we read through and, and studied through that book, it is not silence. <laughs> it is full of trumpets and shouts and crashes and things thrown up and things thrown down. And more, and Revelation 8 says, though, that in this moment there was silence. And it's in the midst of that silence that the focal point of John's vision is the prayers. And you can almost picture it having been so loud and impressive and colorful that that silence had to have been, what's the phrase, deafening? Now, where is the focus turned? But it's the daily prayers of the saints of God flowing up to the throne room. But even more than that, who's being silent? It's the angels of God. It's God himself. It's the saints there before the throne that are silent what great honor and expectation is communicated in that moment. That's certainly not the common view of prayer. I wonder how many people think that when they pray that God, the creator of the universe, might actually be paying attention. I wonder because I often hear things like, our prayers are with you, and I know what that really means is an expression, kind of a horizontal expression of goodwill, like, I hope things go well. 
Or I think of my own often repetitive prayers spoken in sleepy moments. Was I really treating those prayers as being given an audience with the King of Kings? Well, biblical prayer, which is this conversation between an adopted child of God and the Lord himself, prayer that stills and quiets heaven, is something else entirely. I think that most people think of prayer differently. I once quoted Charles Spurgeon, I'll quote him again, who said, my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe, that it has more omnipotent force than electricity, attraction, gravitation, or any other of those secret forces by which men have called by name, but which they do not understand. And that's a bold statement to say that prayer is more powerful than gravity. But look at what happens in verse 5 there. The prayers of the saints purified as they are mixed with the incense burned upon the altar actually prompts the judgment that follows. An angel comes before the altar of God with a censer, he makes and take, mixes the prayers of the saints with incense, just like a priest in the earthly temple. Thus, it's symbolic of cleansing them from any impurity, but then the same angel takes the censer, adds fire from the altar, and throws it over heaven's ramparts, hurled to the earth. The very prayers that had ascended to the throne each one week, in a sense powerless, small in its own right, returns with immense force. And I, and I know it's hard to envision, but it's as if prayer, that intangible spoken communication with God becomes something tangible re-entering history with incalculable effects. The earth, the very earth is shaken. And so we learn from Revelation 8 that at least one more answer to the, pray, the question of why pray is that one of the ways by which God carries out His will is through answering prayer. And that that really shouldn't surprise us that much. God does the same thing with other things. He, for example, has already chosen from before the foundation of the world those whom he calls to himself. So the question is, well, why share the gospel? What difference does it make? Why talk about evangelism if God already knows his sheep? Well, we evangelize because God has declared that the way that he will save his people is through the proclaiming of the gospel. So we would say that God has determined not only who will be saved, but how they will be saved. And evangelism is one of those ways. And the same thing is true of prayer. One of the ways that he works out his will is by responding to your prayers. 
So don't ever think that your prayers aren't heard or that they aren't effectual. They are effectual because God has commanded that you should pray and told you that he will listen. For every one of you that prayed over these past weeks, God heard and cared about your prayers. You young children that signed up for slots to pray. God heard your prayers. Does God act when you don't pray? Certainly. Our prayers don't decide God's will. And therefore, we can't frustrate God's purposes by not praying. If you missed a time slot when you were scheduled to pray, everything didn't fall apart. But don't let that make you think that your prayers are unimportant. Maybe some of you are asking if it still really matters in the grand scheme of things that you, that you pray. You do believe that prayer is important and you believe that you can't frustrate God's purpose, but then perhaps you think, well, well, that's the point. I can't frustrate God's purpose one way or the other. I can't make him decide one thing or another, so why is it important that I pray? God's will is going to be done no matter what. And for what should I be praying? God didn't heal Mike. Was it selfish that I prayed that he would? Let me answer that question by first saying generally that the Bible reveals many things about God's will. In John 14, 27, for example, God promises to give you a peace that transcends understanding. It's far superior to the peace that the world gives. And so it would be perfectly in line with Scripture to pray that to a fellow believer... Like Mike, who may be confused and anxious as he struggles with illness, that God would give the peace that surpasses understanding. In Psalm 23, the Lord promises to be our shepherd and to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Therefore, in someone's darkest hours, we can pray that God will watch over that person's soul and comfort him or her. In Revelation 21, God promises to one day give a new heaven and a new earth where he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And for that reason, we can pray for that day to come swiftly when the present world will be replaced by that ultimate place of joy. And we can be thankful that our brother has already begun that eternity of joy. And when we aren't certain about the specifics of God's will, it is certainly all right for us to bring our personal concerns to the Lord. It is appropriate to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But we must also remember to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. Author Joel Beakey once wrote that prayer does not twist God's arm. It doesn't induce him to change his mind. Prayer does not change it, for his mind is already made up. However, prayer changes our minds. It brings us in line with the will of God. When a man in a boat wants to come back to the land, he guides his boat into a harbor and throws a line to the shore. 
And when the rope is secured, the man pulls on the rope as though he were pulling the shore to him. So I want you to think about that image. Pulling the shore to him. But he's actually pulling himself to shore. Likewise, Beaky concludes, when we pray, we think we are pulling God to us, but we are really pulling ourselves to God. That is what it means to lay hold of God. We must not conceive of prayer as overcoming God's reluctance when, in fact, we are laying hold of his highest willingness. It's a good quote. We do not have an aloof, disinterested God. That's why I went over those initial passages. We don't pray to overcome God's reluctance, but to lay hold of his willingness. How could we think anything else when we read something like Revelation 8? God is willing. He is ready to hear and receive. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.26 that as we pray, the Holy Spirit leads us to pray according to the will of God. So when you pray to the Lord, you may be assured that what you say really matters because God, even in that process, is aligning your desires and your requests as you pray in faith to what he intends to accomplish. So the question is, are you praying? If you've ever been discouraged in prayer and wondered whether your prayers will be answered, the Bible is telling you God does answer prayer. Before God ever appeared to Moses to send him to Egypt, we read in Exodus 2, 23, how the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And it went up to God, it says, and God heard and remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. It may be that you found, actually, that praying for a specific purpose these past few weeks, even the discipline of praying for an extended period of time, actually encouraged more thoughtfulness in your prayers. It likely drew you into the unity of this body of believers, knowing that you were joining your prayer with all those others whose names were appearing in those slots. That was a good thing. I think that's what prayer in the body of Christ is meant to accomplish. You may still be asking yourself, for what or, or whom do I pray now? Well, look at this passage from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. It says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And notice we are to pray for all people. That's the king, those in high positions. It's for our fellow brothers and sisters. Verse 3 tells us that God desires that all people to be saved. And come to the knowledge of the truth. And so God wants you to be interceding on behalf of not just our brothers and sisters, but upon the behalf of the nations for salvation. We know that Jesus in his own model prayer includes phrases like, Give us this day 
and not just give me my daily bread. He says, forgive us our transgressions, not just forgive me. And James, we are told to pray on behalf of the sick. In other words, we are told that we are a community, a family, in which we are praying and interceding for one another. But we are also a community in the midst of a world that God desires to hear the gospel. The neglect of prayer is one of the great failings of the Western church today. Keep praying. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, he says this in Luke 18. Maybe a familiar parable in which there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what this unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. What's being communicated here? Jesus is saying, keep praying precisely when you don't seem to be getting anywhere. He tells of a widow who keeps going before an unjust judge, one who really doesn't care about her needs, one who just cares about himself and his own peace. And he says, the persistence of this widow moves this man to hear and act. And if someone of the world would act in that way, would not God who cares about you, who loves you, will he not respond speedily? In the First Timothy passage, we saw that God desires people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants you to have that same passion. And when your heart and mind are aligned to his heart and mind, when you're motivated not to just pray for yourself, but for the people whom you love, motivated to pray for all people in all positions, you will find that God delights to answer that prayer. And he says, keep being persistent. I quoted Richard Baxter a few months ago, but I think its words are again helpful. He says, let your heart yearn for your ungodly neighbors. There's but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting to seize on them. If they die unregenerate, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care who is condemned as long as you are saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourself. For it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Do you live close by them? Do you meet them in the streets or work with them or travel with them or sit and talk with them and yet say nothing to them of their souls? And perhaps you'll remember this part of the quote, if their houses were on fire, you would run and help them. Will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fiery hell? Again, 
God delights to hear your prayers, and he wants your prayers to not only be for your needs, but to be for the needs of the community, including the needs of our brothers and sisters, but expand beyond that, the needs of the world for life in the midst of death. We've asked and answered questions like, why do I pray and for whom do I pray and to an extent, for what do I pray? When do I pray is an often asked question in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We know that Paul says pray without ceasing. We know that Jesus daily took time out to pray and be with the Father. We know that Daniel was so consistent to pray at the same time and place every day that his enemies used that as a means to entrap him. In fact, speaking of Daniel, let's take a few a look at a few sections of a prayer that he gives found in chapter 9 and learn a little bit about what the content of our prayers might include. We start with verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. David acknowledges that the Lord is great and awesome. Down in verse 15, he describes the Lord as the one who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. He is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love by faithfully keeping his promises to his people. And it's because of that that Daniel believes he can come to him. Some of the ladies of our church have been reading for a study on Monday evenings, and they've recently gone over the subject of prayer and learned an acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S, which stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. As you were praying over the last few weeks, you thought, how can I fill a half an hour? Some of you are wondering. And perhaps that's because your prayers have been very punctuated, short prayers in the past that have focused primarily on the needs of the moment. You wondered, how, how do the people of Scripture pray? We have things like the model prayer of Jesus. We also have this prayer by Daniel. And that acronym acts as a good one. If you start with adoration, we see that that's what Daniel did. He adored his Lord, and then next he confessed. We see that. I haven't included the whole confession here, but just some of it in verses 5 through 7. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness But to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel. You can see as as he's confessing to God, as he's adoring God for his holiness and righteousness, inevitably it reveals by contrast his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. And again, Daniel representing Not only himself, but his community, his people. 
we have been treacherous against you. And as Daniel recognizes, despite the fact that God is righteous and faithful to his promises, Israel has been the exact opposite. And so he confesses the people's sin. And he says, you, O Lord, are great and awesome, while Israel has sinned and done wrong. You are righteous and forgiving, while Israel has been wicked and rebelled. You are faithful to all who love you and obey your commands, while Israel has turned away from those commands. We would do well to pray in the same way. Whether our prayer in that moment is one of intercession for the nations or even prayer for our brothers and sisters. Adore God. Confess sin. The next letter in that acronym is thanksgiving. This isn't unlike adoration, but you can actually adore God in an abstract way. You can be Adoring his attributes without making a connection to what he has done specifically in your own life. And that's where thanksgiving comes in. How has God blessed you? For what can you thank him? And Daniel's prayer, thanksgiving, is implied through when he describes how God has acted on behalf of his people and been covenantly faithful. And then the last part is supplication. Asking God for something. And here are the final verses of that prayer. O our God. You see how Daniel is moved through that process. O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. My God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And so Daniel is praying that God will hear this prayer, will show favor to the people, will restore the sanctuary. That's the specific supplication. That's what he's asking for. But notice the reasoning behind that supplication. Please listen to my prayer for your own sake. For your own glory. I love the intensity of the pleading. Oh my God, incline your ear. Oh Lord, hear. Forgive. Listen. Act. You see, at the end of the day, Daniel's greatest desire is God's name and kingdom. So when you pray, friends, consider beginning by reminding yourself of God's greatness and grace. Confessing to him your sin. Thanking him for what he has done. And then praying for things that will ultimately bring him glory. I think when I think through things like that, my own prayers are almost always too small. I find myself not praying for a great and mighty work of God's Spirit in our community for His namesake. I, I pray for that momentary need of the day. And I forget God's greatness, that He is the one who created all things out of nothing, the one who has been propelling history forward for generations and millennia. 
I keep trying to move God to myself. Pull him to me. My prayers are too small because I forget God's grace. And the more I see and look upon and adore our great God, the more I know that I'm a sinner. And how great a condemnation that is for someone like me who has spent his life studying God's word. In view of the privileges and opportunities that I've been given, what an unprofitable servant I have been and am. And that could easily lead you to despair, to failing to pray. Because you could start to think that not only can God not use someone like you, but that you'll be even under greater condemnation because of the privileges that he's given you. But that is not where God wants to leave you. He doesn't want to leave you at confession. He wants to remember. He wants you to remember to cry out, Lord, I am unfit to be your ambassador. I am, like Isaiah said, a man of unclean lips. And yet God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, send me. And that's what he wants that attitude to be as you move into the supplication. Lord, send me. I'm willing. I I want to be sent but I want to be sent for you. Accomplish your will. Perhaps you'll be driven to say, I cannot stand for a moment in my own strength. I have no words of my own to say, so Lord, give me the strength to stand. Accomplish your purpose through me, through other sinners like me. Build, this, build your church, your kingdom. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive us. Build your kingdom here because your name is worthy and all the people around. Can you imagine if as a church community we were fervently praying that every day, Lord, you are great. Lord, we are unworthy. But Lord, build your kingdom here in the Central Valley because your name is worthy. The people around us need to see it. Oh, Lord, forgive us. As a body of people, oh, Lord, heal this land. Lord, use us. Let your glory be demonstrated through us by taking us and making our lives extraordinary demonstrations of your grace. We have much for which to pray, friend. Much to adore, much to confess, much for which to be thankful, and much for which to ask God to display his glory. After all, we are about to celebrate Christmas in just a month, the sending of the Son of God, through whom the Father dealt once and for all with our sin. If you find yourself wondering what to pray for in the days to come, what about Jesus? Adore Jesus the unparalleled demonstration of God's greatness. As John says, we have seen his glory as of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 
In him was light, and that light is the light of men. If you don't know what to confess, then just remember that that light came to dwell among men to reveal the darkness of our hearts and remember the cross. If you don't know what to be thankful for, remember that grace displayed at the cross in which sin was born by Jesus once for all, never to be remembered. Don't know what to ask for in supplication. Ask for God to save his people through Jesus. That God would sanctify his church. That God would build us up in unity evermore in the likeness of Christ. These are the prayers that God delights to answer. Because we are praying on the basis of what he himself has promised. So thank you, dear friends, for praying for Mike. God delighted in hearing your prayers. You acknowledged that he had the power to save. You prayed for his will, and he revealed his will this week. He took Mike home. And that perhaps raises the final question, why? Why did God answer in this way? Well, part of the answer has already been discussed earlier. It brought God more glory to bring home Mike now than later. And God always does what brings him the most glory. And, of course, it was best for Mike, right? It was best for Mike. Paul says it is far more desirable to depart and be with the Lord, and Mike is enjoying eternity. At this moment, no more sickness, no more pain, just eternal joy. But we can't help but ask why now? Why now when Mike was still fairly young and had much work to do? Why now at this ironic moment when he took a sabbatical to go up and write a book? When we ask a question like why now, we are typically asking for two reasons. First, we who remain grieve the loss and are empathetic towards Mary, to the children's family, also for ourselves. We miss Mike. We think it would be better for us if he were still here. But second, we think about the uncertainties. What happens to the Institute for Principal Studies? What happens to speech and debate? Will Mike's ministry end? Will those who are opposed be victorious? Did the enemy win this week? Those are the questions that we are tempted to ask. And I suggest that God knows the answers to our uncertainties. And those answers, in fact, together with bringing Mike home now, will give God the greatest glory. Perhaps part of our prayers in the coming days will be that we will be sanctified through what we have experienced these past weeks. Perhaps we will learn how better to care for Mary as a widow. Perhaps God will raise up a new leader in the ministries that Mike established, and his investment and his legacy will be used by the Lord to multiply into the next generation. I do believe that we should expect great things of our great God in the weeks to come. I leave you with this encouraging word from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as we think about our brother. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us and even illustrates for us how to pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder through people like Daniel of the consistency of prayer, not only for ourselves, but for other people, of how adoring you and confessing our sin leads us to ask for things that are more likely to be in line with your will. But even in that process, the promise that your spirit, as Paul says, is working in us to conform us to your will. Thank you, Lord, that you delight to hear the prayers of your saints, that you encourage us and command us really to pray without ceasing to have the attitude that one of the instruments that you use to change this world, to bring judgment and salvation is through the prayers of your people. But thank you also, Lord, for the reminder that because you are sovereign, you are not surprised by the events of this week. Help us to have the faith that your glory will indeed go forth despite our uncertainties. Thank you, Lord, for what we experienced in being able to pray and being united in prayer for our brother. And I pray that these experiences will be a foundation for the days to come of being a body of believers who are strong in prayer for one another and for our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.